This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. 30 years ago today, October 19, 1987, was Black Monday. If you're old enough to remember that, you certainly know what that means. The stock markets crashed. They lost nearly 25% of their value. It remains the one-day greatest percentage drop in Dow Jones history. Now, for some context, because we think of the stock markets now as we hear them today, back then, at its at the time that this all began, the Dow Jones was at about, the index was at about 2,200 points. Now it's 23,000, give or take. So what I began to wonder today as I was thinking about this anniversary, could this happen again? And I think the answer probably is yes, although we'll find out. And if it did, what would this mean? Dr. Ronald Balvers is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business. He is the Michael Lee Chin and Family Chair in Investment and Portfolio Management. He's the director of the Michael Lee Chin and Family Institute for Strategic Business Studies. He joins me now. Dr. Balvers, thanks for doing this tonight. All right. You're welcome, Scott. Good evening. Good evening. Um, first of all, as a, as a, to set this up and as a refresher course for those of us who uh, either weren't old enough to remember this or who tried to block this out of our minds because it wasn't a great memory, what was the... Why did this happen in 1987? Yeah, so um, at the time, um, things looked pretty good in the market. And uh, um, however, there were all kind of um, programs in place that caused a small event where maybe some bad news came in and people started to overreact maybe and, and then panic. And then the programs, when prices started to go down, the programs kicked in and cause prices to go down even further. And, and, and so um, part of the reason would be that people like to have some type of portfolio insurance. They say, well, if, if my portfolio goes down 5%, let's say, then I'm going to sell everything. Right? And that's a way of, of minimizing your losses or hedging your, your losses. But if that happens, then prices go down even further, and people panic even further. And, and, and that's the sort of event that happened uh, that day in 1987. Is there any reason to believe the same thinking or the same philosophy or the same whatever could not take place today? Right, yeah, and I I think that um, things have changed a little bit. We now have circuit breakers in place, right? And um, what that means is that if prices were to go down by, let's say, 20%, and 20% is a specific rule, then trading will be stopped people will have a chance to think about it a little bit and trading continues the next day. And so um, the panic will be hopefully dispersed by that time. And, and so, so in, in practice, um, it's, it's well possible to stop part of that type of event, but uh, there's no guarantee that it wouldn't just continue the next day anyway. Well, and the other thing about this that really strikes me as I'm revisiting this story is that, again, the numbers then... Uh, it was 2,200 the index was at back then. Now it's 23,000. If, if 25% roughly, or even 20%, because you say that's where the cap is now, if that was lost in one day, uh, is it just relative? Is it just the cost of inflation? Because it sounds like it would be far more substantial if 20% of 23,000 was lost as opposed to 2,200. Yeah, and it, it's still all in proportion. So, so whatever your portfolio is, you're going to be losing 20% of that portfolio. Right. And, and, and so if you had the same 
portfolio in 1987, again, you would have lost 20% or 25% then. So, so really, the, the fact that prices now sound larger and ten, 10 times as high, that really doesn't make a big difference in, in practice. It's, it's the relative magnitudes that matter. And, of course, 20% of your portfolio, that's still a, a huge chunk. Back then, um, it seems to me that there are a lot more people, though, today. All, I would say the majority of people today who have RRSPs or have mutual funds or have some sort of investments for their retirement. Was right. It seems like more than had it back then, though. So there would be more people potentially affected by this if it happened today. Right. Yeah, and I think more people now manage their own uh, retirement portfolios. And um, there is a broader participation in the stock so, so indeed, if prices do go down by 20%, more people will be invested now than than in 19 will be affected now than in 1987. So, so that is definitely a concern. Um, uh, but mostly, it's going to be a short-run concern because um, this sort of a crash um, is likely to revert fairly quickly. Why? Why would you say it would ha- that would happen? Well, and it's because of this the the crash really being mostly caused by behavioral panic, overreaction, and not really being affected so much um, by fundamentals. And so when people overreact and program trading kicks in, then all that gets exacerbated. But once people realize that none of the fundamentals have really changed, then slowly prices will come, come back up. And if you have the um, patience to stick with the market for a few more years, then you will likely recover most of your losses. And that's the tricky part, right? Because we have an, an aging population now. So for some of these people, the opportunity to stick it out and just wait for it to recover isn't as easy as if, you know, if you're in your 30s or your 40s, you can say, oh, sure, you know, whatever. I've got 20 years for this to, to ride. If I'm in my 60s or even into my 70s, it's a little more difficult. Yeah, and, and so we usually advise people that when they get close to retirement or if they're saving for buying a home or, or whatever, if they need their cash potentially fairly quickly, then it's smart not to put too much in the stock market, right? So, so putting all of your eggs in the stock market is really a good idea if you're younger and saving for retirement. But many cases, many times, it's, it's not as good of an idea and, and you're better off um, at least keeping maybe half your savings in a safer spot. Is it inevitable at some point that this huge number that we are going to see something like this, though? Um, yeah, I think that right now, I, I think the last five years or so, we've had a very steady increase in, in stock market uh, prices, and it almost seems like it's not a very risky market. But uh, history tells us that that's that never the case. And um, at some point, we're going to see a crash. And um, if it's not caused by fundamentals, then it's something that we can survive as long as we're able to stick it out for a few more years. You, and you use the word crash. Is it is it necessary that it would be a crash, or would you expect it would be a dip? Like if something were to be corrected, would you expect it would, even in that one day, are you expecting that it would be something substantial and shocking? Yeah, I, I think it's more likely to be substantial because of the um, reactions that that people have and, and people really when prices go down by five or six percent people start thinking okay now I'm gonna get out because um, I've exceeded my quota for, for losses and 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 so very quickly when it goes down several percent um, 
there there is an additional overreaction and and it, it goes down the drain further. So um, and that's really in the short run a problem. If you need liquidity in the in the longer run, it, it will will come back. So this becomes essentially a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. That yeah. We have people who say, this is probably going to happen someday. So when people see a little bit of dips, they start to get really concerned right. and then bail out. Yeah, and, and especially now when we're really at the top of the range, people start getting a little bit jumpy. People think, well, it's been going so well, maybe we're overdue. And, and at a point like that, um, you know, we could easily have a, let's say, a Black Friday tomorrow. Right? And and it could just happen. A little event can can tick it off, can start it off, and um, you know we will then maybe see a 20% dip and a 20% crash, and maybe the next day another five or 10%. And even if that happens, you know, I, I expect it to to come back in in the longer run. And and the reason is that the fundamentals are really very strong at the moment. You know, firms have healthy corporate earnings. Um, folks have been saying, well, in spite of that, if you look at price-to-earnings ratios, then prices still seem a little bit too high because we have uh, price-to-earnings ratios of around 25%, where historically they've been maybe around 15. Right? So 25 compared to 15 is 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 too high. But the reason is that um, in the long run we're going to have and we're going to keep low interest rates. Things have permanently changed in that respect. And with lower interest rates, price earnings ratios can be higher because stocks are just um, a better deal compared to the bonds and and other financial instruments that pay these low interest rates. The um, Would it make a difference? And we only have a minute or two left here. Would it make a difference if a, if one of these things, if a correction was to happen, would it make a difference on which day of the week it happened? And the reason I ask you that is because you talked about how this would be shut off once it gets to twenty percent, so people have a wait, a cooling off period. Right. Would it be advantageous if it happened on a Friday and the whole weekend then it had to cool off, or would that be the worst thing to happen to have people give that much time to think about it? Yeah, and, and I think there's some opposing issues there, and, and one issue is, is liquidity. If, if people can't trade, if the market shuts off, then people that do need the liquidity won't be able to get it. And so they will then have to wait the weekend till Monday before they can get liquidity. And, and so there, there's a cost associated with that. But um, the, the other side of the coin is that yeah, if, if there's really a, a panic that leads to that 20% crash, then once people have had the time to think about it and have looked at the numbers reasonably and, and put things in perspective, then very likely Monday morning prices will go up again. Last thing before I let you go, it is what is the general time frame? Uh, I know we've gone longer than usual, but there, it seems as though it's about once every 10 years, 50. Well, what's the, what's the general time that you have for a market to grow before there is a correction? Because we do, I mean, we had one shortly after 9-11. Now that was obviously brought on by um, the subprime mortgages in the States, but also by what was happening with terrorism and other challenges. But uh, we're way past what would normally be the cycle, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a difference between a correction and, and a crash. And, and so I think crashes can happen once in a while. They come randomly and it's hard to predict and, and it's hard to say much about the timing. Corrections can happen when really the fundamentals are telling us that prices are too high. But at this point, I think we, we, we don't have that. You know, Given the low interest rates, 
fundamentals are, are great. And, and so we can expect stock prices to keep rising from that perspective um, without a correction. And, and so even, even so, we might have once in a while, we might have a, a, a crash that's going to be short-lasting. But correction, I don't, I don't anticipate in the, in the next few years at least. Dr. Ronald, Ronald Balvers from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. You're welcome. It's it's a fascinating discussion uh, for a couple reasons. One, because I know nothing about it. I am hopeless when it comes to investing and the stock market. That's why, you know, hopefully most people, well, I know some of you out there are brilliant at that stuff. I am not. And when you see the stock market just keep going up and up and up and up, your natural, my, anyway, natural inclination is to say, okay, at some point, this has to stop. At some point, something is going to go wrong. Maybe that's just the pessimist in me. But when? And when do you get out? And when do you keep investing? When do you dump more money? It is. This is why it's a gamble. It's always a gamble. It's always a gamble. But 30 years ago today, that gamble did definitely not pay off for some people when Black Monday happened. Um Dr. Balvers is, of, of course he is. He, I was going to say he's absolutely right. Of course he is, though. Um, reading up on what the the safety nets are that have been put in place, and I, I don't completely understand how capping or cutting off trading would solve the problem. I get what he said, that it would give people time to think. I'm just not positive, personally, and I'm certainly, as I say, certainly not the expert, but I, uh, I, uh, would that prevent people the next day from not still being jittery and panicky and selling more off? Maybe we would, hopefully we don't have to see, but at some point it's going to happen. Hopefully it's not for you when you are at that age, when you need your money now. See, that's difficult. If you're post-retirement and you're sitting there on your nest egg and all of a sudden 20% of it goes away or 25% goes away, that is a difficult thing. But anyway, hopefully not. But 30 years ago today, I'm sure you remember it. If you're, if you're of retirement age and I'm talking to you as that person who might be jittery about it, you definitely remember what happened on October 19, 1987, and we do not want to see that again. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We don't pay all that much attention to volleyball generally. It's just it's not hockey, and that sucks up most of the oxygen in the room, or unless baseball's on or football, we just don't. However, every once in a while, even for those who never would even think about volleyball, there are some moments when it becomes worth your time to contemplate it. And this weekend is one of those times, and I'll tell you why. McMaster has, for years now, for years, had one of the very best, one of the elite volleyball programs in the country, mostly on the men's side. The women's side as well, though, has had great success. Last year... Ohio State, the two-time, well, now it's two-time, but then the defending NCAA U.S. College Championship team came up here to McMaster to play a game, a match against McMaster, and Max swept them. Max swept them. The best college team in the States. In what other sport does this happen? And the answer is really no other sport does this happen. But the best U.S. college team came up to Canada, played against one of the top teams in this country, and the Canadian team spanked them. Well, that makes it worth a discussion. 
especially since that same Ohio State team, now the two-time defending NCAA champions, are coming to McMaster this weekend. Saturday night at 7, Sunday at 2. They're playing two matches this year. Uh, the head coach of the McMaster Marauders, a, I don't know how many times now he's won the National Coach of the Year, three, four, something like that. He probably doesn't even have a shelf big enough for all the awards. Uh, Dave Preston joins me now. Dave, how are you? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, would it be fair to say, and I know you had great confidence, but would it be fair to say that last year when you guys beat Ohio State at home so people here could see it, that a lot of people were shocked by that? Uh, yeah, I, I think shocked was uh, was a good word to describe it. I think everybody outside of our team room was. Um, I think the guys inside our team room had a pretty good idea that we were going to be okay. But uh, on the outside, I think everybody was kind of coming for a spectacle, which, which you would expect the U.S. teams to kind of dominate a little bit, and that just didn't happen. And uh, can't say I was disappointed about it. <laughs> well, but we've been conditioned to believe, and with good reason. I mean, if, if Mac, no slight against Mac's football team, but if Mac's football team went to play Ohio State, it would be a mismatch. And if Mac's basketball team probably went down and played against the top teams in the States, in the NCAA, it would probably be a mismatch. Volleyball, though, you, it, it, it's a different world. It is, it is a little bit of a different world. And, uh, you know, the NCAA is a competitive machine, right? It's uh from, from tip to tail, they, they do things a little bit different. I think Canadian university sport is a little bit more of a developmental model, and the NCAA is a very competitive model. And so, you know, at the, at the, at the basic level, Scott, you would expect there to be an imbalance. But volleyball is one of the few, uh, especially men's volleyball, uh, one of the few that uh, because of a variety of circumstances, we do equate with each other. And, I mean, I know it could take a while, but in, in short, what are those circumstances that allow you to be competitive with them and even beat them? Well, well first off, the same number of programs. So uh, we have approximately the same number of programs in Canada as they do in the U.S. So uh, just from a, a sport uh, depth and breadth, um, it, it's about the same. The second thing is, uh, from a scholarship point of view, um, scholarships for men's volleyball in NCAA, they're only allowed to offer four and a half full ride scholarships per program. And, uh, that's because of Title IX. And Title IX isn't an NCAA regulation, it's a U.S. government regulation. And so they have to offer equal envelopes to sports and, and, or to men and women. And so because they have so many men participants in sports like football and basketball, They've got to limit the number of scholarships provided in other sports like volleyball. So because of that limited scholarship number, uh, you, you end up with about uh, equal funding. So, so I think the sheer numbers and the dollars and cents of it um, are two equating factors. So if, if there's a Canadian kid, for example, who could maybe in a different sport be good enough to get a Division One scholarship, there's a chance he may not get that in volleyball, so he may as well just stay home and play. Or, or at least not a full ride, because they're gonna, they'll have the same number of participants per team, uh, you know, 14, 15 guys per team, some carry as high as 18, uh, but they won't be able to fund all those guys on scholarships. So they may get some funding, but they may not get a full ride. 
I can't remember, uh, going back to last year when you guys played Ohio State, uh, I can't remember a time that your gym on your campus has been louder, though, than during that game, especially as you guys were getting ready to beat them. Well, then you might want to come back Saturday and Sunday because it's going to get the same way for two matches. I believe they've sold 1,300 seats combined pre-sale already. Uh, we still got two days, and I know that uh, they had to send something out today to uh, – to let the students know that there was only going to be 200 free student seats that were going. Usually it's, uh, they had to limit it because of the number of seats that are going to be available. So um, it's, it's going to be pretty crazy. And uh, quite honestly, Scott, that's why we do this, uh, to provide that student-athlete experience of playing in front of a packed gym in your home, home school. Um, you know, these are, the, these are the things that we really work to try and provide. And if we could do it, Every match of the year we would, um, but uh, fortunately right now we're able to do it with the uh, Ohio State matches and we're taking full advantage of it. I think I probably ask you this every time you're on here, and that's about once a year usually, um, but is the sport gaining traction around here, especially because you've now had these things with Ohio State and you've, you've hosted a national championship or two? Uh, and you're going to be again in March. Are you able, are you seeing the fruits of all this beginning to create new volleyball players a new interest in the sport i I believe we are uh i believe the participation levels are up and i uh although i don't have a a full grasp on the local area i do know that i've seen some statistics that have been put out through uh high school associations in both canada and the u.s um and boys or men's volleyball participation numbers are going up um in both sides of the border so i think uh i think we are starting to see some of the the fruits of the labor um and i think sometimes scott it's not always the participation numbers that have to increase but the level of of competition or the um the caliber and so you know we've got four guys right now from our program that are playing in europe in the professional leagues that's a good statistic for me um you know when when you can say that in the last three years out of your graduation class, you've put four pros uh, coming out of your program. That's good caliber, and I think the caliber coming out of high school and club is a lot closer to to what university coaches would like it to be when it's coming out. You know, it's an interesting number because that is more in the last three years, I think, than the football team has put in the pros. And again, not taking a shot at them, but they have a league that requires Canadian players to be in it, like a pro league. If you've got more going in than they have, that's something. Yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, I try not to use that comparative because uh, I'm a big football supporter. I don't really know uh, what their numbers are, but I, I'll tell you what, uh, our, our McMaster Athletics program, in my opinion, is second to none from, uh, from every sport we offer. I think we do a really, really good job of using the resources that we have to, to provide a great student-athlete experience for football, volleyball, and right on down the line. How do you, there, there is so much competition though for athletes right now. If a kid is a big kid or an athletic kid, I'm thinking probably because of the exposure of basketball, because in the gym at lunchtime he can just shoot around, he can, he, he can put a net up in his driveway and play by himself, that you're competing with other sports and basketball being an obvious one. How do you lure kids into volleyball though? It's hard because it's not a game that's very exciting when you're young. Um, and, you know, and, and if you've played it at, uh, at any recreational level, you know, it, it can be 
you know, not the most exciting game when there's misserve after misserve. Or, um, but I think what we're finding now is there's certain sports that that attract younger age children, uh, gymnastics and and some of the gross motor skills sports uh, that attract younger age children. And I think we're seeing now that although we may not, there there are big participation numbers now when they're at lower ages, but I think from the high performance caliber athlete. You're starting to see athletes come in at a little later stage when perhaps they've they've run the cycle with a hockey or they've run the cycle with a basketball and now they're looking for a new option. And uh, I'm finding more and more of those, Scott, that are fitting that high-performance model where you've got tremendous athleticism, uh, but either through an overuse injury or something that has made them make that transition, uh, they're finding their way into volleyball, perhaps at a little bit of a later age. So... Um, it, it, it's a unique sport, uh, I guess, uh, development issue, but it's one that uh, I'm trying to attach myself to. We've got two freshmen on our team right now, or sorry, two, uh, one freshman and one uh, second-year athlete who just started playing a couple years ago, uh, but they were able to make a varsity squad. And I was going to ask that because you do a lot of recruiting. You have to. Every college coach, every university coach has to do a lot of recruiting. But do you do any evangelism? And, and I mean, when you see a kid playing another sport and you see that he's athletic, do you ever go up to him and go, hey, have you ever tried volleyball? Um, not as much now because, uh, you know, we, we have, a, we have a, a unique problem right now where we're turning away more good kids than we're keeping. We really only keep three to four a year right now coming off the recruiting cycle. So... Um, and most of the ones that we're looking at have a pretty good pedigree already, but there are a couple. Um, I have done it in the past. Uh, I don't, uh, in, in my earlier years at McMaster, we were, we were working some of the other, uh, intramural leagues, but, uh, not as much anymore, thankfully. Um, but yeah, you can see it. And, uh, and more importantly, it's the parents now that are saying, Hey, you know, my son's doing this and he's not really happy, but he thinks he want to try. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, you, you get a new, uh, a new life out of it. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, when you know a few years ago now, a long time ago, when Wilt Chamberlain decided to take up volleyball after playing basketball. Someone obviously talked him into it, and I never actually saw him play volleyball. But I'm, I'm guessing he might not have been bad. You know what, Scott? I didn't see him either, but I know the story, and uh, it was it, that was right when I was kind of get into it because you know my personal story is I was I was a basketball guy too, and uh, and ended up converting into volleyball so it's not uncommon um and uh you know and now with the uh with the or the uh, increased level of beach volleyball awareness you can play that game long long into your 40s and uh at a really really high level so it is a game that you can pick up after your sports cycle is done and others and uh and continue it on but at the varsity level we're pretty lucky because um you know we can get them at a you know at 15 or 16 where you know, if you're a 15 or 16 year old hockey player and you're not in the in the show or on, on the track, it's probably not going to happen by then. Uh, but we're at volleyball; you're just starting. You guys just got back from Poland. You took the team over there for uh, a tour. You played six matches, four of them against pro teams. You guys are not a pro outfit, uh, obviously, or a university team. I would assume that professional teams are the creme de la creme, and I'm assuming that they are at a higher level than you. Why go do that? Um, well, from a competitive point of view, we can show everything we got, uh, and we don't have to play any of those teams come the playoff stretch. So there's what I call competitive cost to it. 
anytime you schedule a non-conference match, there's a chance that that team that you're going to play is going to meet up with you later on down the stretch. So uh, in Europe, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, same with this weekend with Ohio State. We don't have to worry about the competitive cost of it. We're not going to see Ohio State in the playoffs. So um, that, coupled with the fact that you still want to be challenged, you still want to make sure that uh, the level that you're, you're playing at is, well, what we want is better than our own. So we purposely went there knowing that these teams are likely going to put the boots to us, which is exactly what happened. Um, and we knew that we could play at that level, Scott, but the difference is they know how to win at that level. And so our challenge was to figure out the difference. What are we doing at 18-all that they pop it into another gear that we just don't? And, um, and those lessons and the exposure of our systems and the other stuff that we needed to work on became very, very clear. And so now the next challenges are, what do we do about it? You know, are, are we willing and are we committed to finding the solutions to those issues? And, uh, and that's, what we're, that's what we're dealing with right now. And I, I have to take my hat off to the guys because they've done an unbelievable job since we returned on Saturday about committing to that process to address the issues that we that we faced over there. But it's an interesting situation because there are coaches out there in different sports, and you know this, you've seen this, who when they're in their preseason, part of what they're doing, they're trying to build confidence, and they're trying to build momentum in the preseason and win some games so their guys feel good about what they're doing and they feel confident. You took the complete opposite attack and said, no, no, go ahead, beat us. I, I find it an interesting thought process to go through yeah you know what and uh i i think i think each coach really needs to know their team i think each coach needs to know um how you're built and uh and what they're capable of but a lot of our guys like there's a lot of our guys in our lineup scott that have already international experience playing at junior world championships and pan am cups and and you know so international competition was a wasn't a big stretch for them uh there was you know perhaps maybe with a slightly different lineup, but I don't think too many of our guys were, uh, were taken by the moment of playing some of these pros. Um, but I do think that if you treat it right, both of those scenarios can be beneficial. If you want to, if you need your team to build confidence, uh, then, you know, that is the route you would take. But I think our team is pretty confident and I think we're, we, we kind of know, what some of our strengths would be and what some of our weaknesses would be. And so we were okay. We, we put a good month of training in before we went over to Europe. And I think we had a pretty good beat on ourselves of, you know, this is kind of who we are. So I think we handled it very well. Obviously, when you're getting that exposed, it's not fun. So if we were looking to go over there for a vacation and, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a relaxing time in Poland. Um, we were we were challenged, and that's not always fun for 17- to 22-year-old kids, but it can be very beneficial, especially when you're hosting the national championships in your own gym. The uh, you, Ohio State Buckeyes in town on Saturday at 7, Sunday at 2. Uh, tickets, I understand, are at marauders.ca or can be bought at the door. Uh, Dave Preston, appreciate the time. Good luck this weekend. I'm sure it'll be, um, if it's anything like last year, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, there's quite a bit of confetti. I think they ordered. I don't know if they have the single. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Uh, yeah, they don't usually sell it in singles. They don't usually sell no. it in singles. Uh, Dave Preston, really appreciate the time. Thanks. Take care, Scott. That is uh, McMaster men's volleyball coach Dave Preston. We talk volleyball 
as I say, probably once a year, maybe slightly more than that here because, well, we would never talk about it if Mac wasn't as good as they are. Let's put it that way. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You may have read about my next guest in the paper. I hope you did. Uh, You may have seen it online. He is the guy behind what's called Men's Street Ministry, which goes out and helps local street people, street community, folks who are living on the streets, who are possibly down and out, probably down and out. Uh, They may have, who knows why they're there. Doesn't really matter, I suppose, why they're there. They need help. And he is one of the people who is doing this. He serves them food. He provides them with other essentials. And this is all something that he has come up with, built up. He has volunteers that help him. We're going to talk about that. Uh, His name is Roger Boyd. He joins me now. Roger, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm kind of surprised you even have time to talk about this tonight because when I'm reading about this and the time you are putting into this and how much effort it is, uh, this is a massive, massive commitment. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, we, my wife and I, Janet and I, we, you know, we're dedicated to it um, because we just want to show the homeless that people do care about them and love them. And we just want to show them God's love. And uh, I had no idea when I started over a year ago where this was going to lead. I just started by cleaning out my closet and heading down to the street. And, uh, you know, and read the article today in the paper. And this is where I'm at in basically, you know, 12 or 13 months. Why did you start, though? What was it? There had to have been something that inspired you to make that first step, though, and do it in the first place. Yeah. Um, when I was a... I come from a family of, of seven children, and uh, I've lost all four of my brothers. And uh, I had a twin brother, and uh, he, he died tragically at six months old. And uh, a lot of people didn't even know I had a twin brother, you know, and it's just like the homeless. Uh, I didn't want him to be forgotten. And uh, so in the back of my mind for the last, I would say five, six years, I talked to my family about, you know, if I ever won the lottery, I want to have a, a charitable organization in the name of my uh, twin brother. And uh, I didn't know what that would look like. You know, I I thought that I, I needed to win a lottery uh, to do it. But uh, I was all wrong. I thought I needed, I always wanted to help the homeless. So I thought I need a truck and a trailer and I wouldn't be able to work. And uh, I would have to fund it all myself. But you know what? I was totally wrong. All I had to do was just start it. So you didn't win the lottery? I didn't win the lottery. <laughs> I'm still working. I work at Terry on New Home Warranty Corporation full time. I've been there just uh, 13 years, and uh, yeah, and I and I'm doing this. But and, it, uh, loving every minute of it. But let me go back and ask again because I clearly your uh, your intention, your your heart to help people is there, but. Why the homeless? Because, I mean, there, were, there are lots of other possibilities. I mean, you can help in lots of different places. What was it that pointed you towards that area to help? Well, it's not only the, the homeless that I help. It's anybody that's in need. 
you know, my parents weren't wealthy. Uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, my, my older brothers and sisters, you know, we didn't even have running water. Um, they didn't have running water. They, they lived in a garage uh, with uh, wood heat. Um, we used to pay the neighbors to have a, a bath. Um, so, you know what? We came from my, my older brothers and sisters. They, they struggled. And uh, I remember those stories. And as growing up, my mom and dad would pay forward. I remember them uh, going down to mission services and taking food all the time uh, and, and helping the men. Hmm. It's a, now this, when you started this, so when you, you took your clothes, you went through the closet, that was the first thing you did. Um, how did this though go from that, from a donation, which a lot of people have made a donation over the years, whether it's to directly to someone or to a, an Amity box or a Goodwill box or whatever. A lot of people have done that. And that's a great thing that they would do. How does it go from that to deciding you're going to now take an active hands-on feeding and all these other things step? Because that's, that's where most people don't take that next step, and that's where you did. Yeah. So I went down to in front of the Salvation Army. I didn't know where I was going. I just knew that I wanted to, uh, you know, do something. I didn't want to take my clothes to Value Village. I wanted to give them to the needy and that the people that need them can't afford to always go to Value Village. So I wanted to take them down to the street personally. And I thought, you know what, Wilson Street in front of Salvation Army. So I went there. And uh, what a what a lesson. I didn't know anything about the homeless. You know, I didn't know anything uh, what I was getting into. And uh, I just I stopped my car right in front of Salvation Army and, and just said, hey, my name is Roger. And I just cleaned out my closet. And I have a bunch of clothes here. And would you guys be interested in having, uh, a, you know, could you use some? And they go, oh, yeah, we could use some. And uh, I started handing them out. And there was this one particular guy, and he was about 60 years old. And uh, he asked me a few questions. He says, are you with the church? And I go, no. He says, are you with the Salvation Army or the Good Shepherd and I, and, or, or the missions? And I go, no, I'm just the guy that cleaned out my closet. And uh, he says, so you just cleaned out your closet and you thought it was a good idea to come down and give it out. And I go, yeah, I, I did. I said, I, I wanted to, to let you guys know that you're not forgotten, that I was thinking about you, and I just want to show you some God's love. And uh, I said to him, do you want anything? And he says, no, I don't want anything. And he just stood there and watched me hand out my clothes. And, you know, and I learned that some of the guys are, you know, very timid. They're very timid, and they wouldn't come forward. And other guys would speak up for them and uh, get clothes, and I would give them to the other homeless guys, and they would pass them on. And this guy came up to me again. He says, so let me just get this straight. You're not with the Good Shepherd. You just came down and cleaned out your closet, and you're just giving your clothes out. And I go, that's correct. And I said, do you want anything? And he says, yeah. Can I just have a hug? And uh, I hugged a 60-year-old man, and it broke me. It broke me. And uh, I just said to myself, and God, I said, you know what? We just started Man Street Ministry. And uh, other guys would come forward after I give this one guy a hug. 
young kids, kids, you know, guys uh, the age of my children in their early 20s, late teens, and getting a hug from me, a complete stranger. And that's how it started. And I committed myself to go down there on Wednesday night and Saturday mornings, and I started bringing soup. And uh, That you made and, yourself? Yes. I started off with a, just a, your, your typical 12-quart, uh, you know, household pot. And now I'm making... Uh, about 150 quarts a week, <laughs> and I'm making over 300 sandwiches a week. Uh, I go through like 300 meatballs a week. I go through, uh, I don't know, about seven pounds of ham a week, and I go through a couple turkeys a week. And, uh, yeah, my Facebook is amazing. In my community, I am so proud of Hamilton. I am so proud of my community and, and in the outskirts of our community, you know, you know, Oakville and Burlington and in Hagersville, I have so many people that support me. And, and not just with money. I mean, I understand that people are donating and you've got companies. I know Starbucks donates some stuff to you and a bakery yeah. in Ancaster and there's other places, but you also have people who are now volunteering their time with you as well. Oh, absolutely. I have, uh, approximately about 12 to 15 volunteers, uh, helping me out weekly. It's amazing. I have this boy, uh, young boy, called me up about six, seven months ago and said, hey, I would like to, you know, help you out with your ministry. And I said, he says, well, I want to come out onto the street. And I said, you know, the street is not for you. You know, you, if you want to watch my ministry, um, you should be watching it on Facebook. You know, because he's a young kid, you know, and I don't think, you know, it's, you know, the proper thing for young people to see at that age. And it's, and it's not, it's sometimes it is, you know, a little dangerous and it could be. And uh, he says, well, I want to help. I, my brother wants to help and I got a couple buddies. And I thought about it and I said, you know what? How about you guys make me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? I'll supply you the bread and the peanut butter and the jelly. And, uh, and they have, and they've been doing it faithfully twice a week for six months. It's incredible, this young boy. Roger, I mean, it's, it is. It is incredible, and I, and I applaud you, and I applaud them. T- tell me this, though. One of the things that you must get, and I think it's a, a, a thing that a lot of people wonder about who don't go down and do this. Uh, when you are now dealing with people who are on the street for whatever their reason is, and you're seeing them repeatedly so they get to know you i have to believe that some of you some of them end up telling you their stories or what their circumstance was or how they got there give me an example if you can don't i mean obviously not with a name you don't want to betray a trust but how what are you finding how are people ending Uh, up there you know scott let me tell you there's a thousand different stories there's there's it's I deal with a lot of mental health issues and mental health issues not being treated lead to alcohol and drug addictions. But not everybody on the street has a drug addiction or an alcohol or they're an alcoholic. There's guys on the street that I help that have been hurt at their job and uh, workman's compensation is run out and uh, they're injured, and uh, they can't get a, a good job, but they can afford to 
stay at the Salvation Army or the YMCA. There's guys that, you know, have gone through what I've gone through, uh, a divorce. How many of, of us have gone through a divorce? And these guys are paying child support, but they don't have enough money to pay for another apartment. So they have to live in some hmm. type of subsidized housing, if, you know, paying uh, X amount of dollars a night to stay at the YMCA. And they're working. You know, anybody that comes to my vehicle for, for clothing or for food, I, I never turn them away. Because you know what? Uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to come uh, up to somebody totally stranger and, and ask for help. Why do you have to do this, though, Roger? And I don't mean you. I, I understand your, or I, I believe I understand your motive behind this. But are, do we not in this city have the social services downtown that would look after these kind of things? Like, why does Roger have to go out and do this himself as a private citizen? Um, you know, what? this is just my, my, my opinion, my personal opinion, and just based on what I see. I, I think the Salvation Army does a wonderful job. I think the Good Shepherd does an amazing job, and the Mission Services does an amazing job. I believe that there's something around 500 people uh, that are homeless in Hamilton. Um, that's a lot. And there's also a lot of people in need in Hamilton. They're, they're also not homeless, but they're just needy. They're just, you know, they need that extra meal. And my ministry isn't about replacing the Salvation Army or the Mission Services or the Good Shepherd. I'm just an in-betweener. I'm just an in-betweener to help take some pressure off, or I help the people that won't go to those services. You have to understand, with mental with mental health, there's a lot of guys that won't go to the Salvation Army for many reasons. And uh, they, they're hardcore homeless, we call them. They actually, you know, stay outside 365 days a year. And those are the guys I really try to concentrate on and uh, to help make sure that I give them street beds. Um, I have, uh, I collect milk bags and I have a bunch of different people and different little organizations that make street beds out of milk bags for me, uh, for, for the homeless. Mm. And that's why I collect the winter coats and the hats and the mitts and, and all the stuff that goes along with it. Roger, we're, uh, sadly we're out of time. I'd love to keep doing this. But if somebody listening was interested in either volunteering or, uh, and that would be terrific, or if they want, if they, if they have, like you had, uh, some stuff in their closet they want to give or they want to donate some money or whatever else, how do they reach you? How do they reach your organization, your ministry, so they can do this? So you can uh, email me at manstreetministry at gmail.com. At M-E-N-S, Men's Street. Yeah, just M-E-N, and then street, ministry, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can uh, drop things off at, uh, you know, uh, at my home, like everybody else does, at 178 Book Jans Drive, Ancaster. That's B-O-O-K-J-A-N-S, Drive, Ancaster. You know, it's, it's amazing. Every day I come home from work, there's a couple bags of something out there or 
uh, a few cases of uh, tomato sauce or there's always something. Hamilton is amazing and my support is amazing through the city. People do believe in what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I'm just one guy um, just trying to make awareness of the homeless situation in Hamilton and mental illness in, in the streets of Hamilton. It is, uh, it's a great story. Roger, what you're doing is, uh, is terrific, and I appreciate you, taking, appreciate you doing that, and I appreciate you taking time today. Roger Boyd, uh, uh, listen, good luck going forward. It's such a great thing. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It is, uh, again, let me give you the, uh, the email again and the address again. Uh, the email, if you want to get in touch, if you have some extra clothes that you aren't wearing, winter jackets, whatever else, if you think that you have some stuff that could still, we don't want, he doesn't want crap, but if you've got something that's still usable, men, M-E-N, street ministry, simple, dot, at gmail.com, menstreetministry at gmail.com, or if you want to write down his address, 178 Book Jans, B-O-O-K-J-A-N-S, Drive in Ancaster. You can just drop something off there. If you are thinking you want to help with something, if you want to do something to help someone these days, there's there's an opportunity for you. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.